Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter in chapter number 4. The book of 1 Peter in chapter number 4. We are still moving through in just a few more lessons left as we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, understanding that the idea of 1 Peter is strengthening the brethren. Persecution is right around the corner. And this, the apostle Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to encourage that New Testament church of believers that trying times are going to come. Now's the time to start preparing for it. Now's the time to develop the habit of obedience to Christ. Now's the time to live for him. And as we hit the passage now, we could see that same thing of persecution that is upcoming being the themed highlight as we find our way to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. The book of 1 Peter in chapter number 4, and if you don't mind, notice with me in starting at verse number 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other man's matter. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of First Peter, chapter number four? First Peter, chapter number four. Notice, if you don't mind, at the very last phrase, as though strange. <coughs> uh, sorry, the very first phrase, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. And in this, we see that the fiery trial is not strange. And we see this idea of being strong in our commitment to God. Being strong in our commitment with God. There's a classic confrontation between the reasoning of men and the wisdom of God. In our present age, we're still dealing with the same conflict. We feel that we should be adored by an unbelieving world because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But in fact, the opposite is true. We are not applauded because we're Christians. We're not applauded because we're trying to do what's right. In fact, the opposite is true. They hate us because they're follow because we're following after Christ. The problems that we have is that we want no conflict. We want no problems. We want an easy life. We don't want to talk about having difficulties. We don't want to talk about us having suffering. We want to have just a life with a bed of roses, but God never promises an easy life. In fact, the opposite. The more that you follow after Christ, the Bible gives you a promise just as real as John 3, 16. Yea, that all that will live godly shall suffer persecution. It is a promise. So the Bible here, as it opens up, it is saying here, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. It says, don't be surprised when things happen. It shouldn't catch you off guard. <gasps> you should expect that things are going to occur. You don't, shouldn't be caught off guard. We know that God is at work. And that we can trust him and that he's doing these things on purpose. One of the things that we talk about God is that God is righteous. That means everything God does is right. So if God allows a trial to come in your life, is God still right? Yes, because everything he does is right. Now, we wouldn't want to choose those things. We understand there's a principle in the Bible called God's unconscious preparation. Meaning that there are choices in life that we make for ourselves. But there are choices that God makes for us. For example, none of us chose who our parents were. Otherwise, if there was a line that said, all right, you're fixing to be born. Who do you want to be born to? Most of us would say Bill Gates or someone who had money or some easy path. God didn't give us a choice. God didn't give us a choice where we would be born. Otherwise, everybody would be born in Texas. They didn't give you a choice of when you'd be born. Some of you'd feel more comfortable back in the 1800s without technology. Others would feel more comfortable with more technology. He didn't give you a choice of when you were going to be born. Those were choices he made for you. In addition, when it comes to suffering and heartache and pain, none of us would say, you know what I need today? I need a good dose of pain. That's what I need today. God didn't give you the choice. Because if we had the choice, we would say no every time. So God doesn't give us the choice. But he knows we need it. So he allows those things in our life. And we have to recognize that God is behind it. And that God is the one in control. And it's not there to harm us. It may hurt us for a moment. But it's not there to harm us. There's a difference. Notice if you don't mind, let's look here in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 and let's understand a little bit more of this idea of suffering. First of all, let's hit this principle here, the certainty of suffering. The certainty of suffering. Again, very plain language is used in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's very plain language here. Don't be surprised when things happen in your life. We are to expect them to know that we're going to go through fiery trials. Now, <laughs> I, I was just talking to a young Christian about this the other day, that uh, 
they had to cancel a soul winning meeting at their church. Not here, but somewhere else. And they were saying, oh, we're going through opposition today. I said, why in the world are you blaming, uh, blaming circumstances? I said, could it be the providence of God? Maybe that God knew what he was doing? We get in the habit of blaming circumstances and blaming the devil and blaming our flesh when we fail to look beyond that and see that God's in control. God knows what he's doing. It could be that he was protecting you from something. It could be that something else. Can we trust God? God is in control. She says, I never thought about it that way. But don't we get in the habit of blaming everything else? Instead of looking at God and looking how good God is and how great God is. <laughs> when I was, what I was trying to get to, the idea, is that we like to blame everything else on someone else. On Satan's really fighting me today or my flesh is really in the way. But... You know, we go through trials to strengthen us up. Maybe I'll give an example. In World War II, they had groups of men called paratroopers. And paratroopers' job was to uh, be trained well enough that they were to parachute behind enemy lines and help sabotage or help uh, clear the beaches and make it easier so the landing party could arrive. Now, in order to be a paratrooper, you had to go through extensive training. And you had to go carry 75 pounds of stuff going up a five-mile hike, 10-mile hike. You had to carry all of these things. You had to push up. Uh, you had to do a lot of extensive training. And no time during the training as those paratroopers are preparing, they're doing the, the lifts and the push-ups and the sit-ups. None of them are saying, man, Adolf Hitler's really fighting against me today. Let me tell you, the enemy really hates me today. No. What do they recognize? That the enemy wanted them flabby and weak and useless. Satan does not want us to be strong. He doesn't want us to work out. And what happens is that when we go through these spiritual battles, we learn to trust in God. And with each one, as we trust in God, we get stronger. So that way we could put more weight on and become stronger and add more weight and become stronger. That's the process of working out. That when you first work out and you say, well, I'm athletic. I've never lifted before. I'm going to go ahead and put 350 pounds up on this bar. Let's go. No, you start with what you can handle and then you used to work, you're putting that weight and then more weights put on. Why do we do that? Because we're stretching ourselves. We're strengthening ourselves. That's part of what's going on. In the spiritual battle, God knows that we're going to need stretched. We're going to know that we need strengthened. Otherwise, we'd be weep and flabby. If we had our choice, we would have no opposition whatsoever. And we would also have no spiritual strength whatsoever when we ran into something important. There's a certainty of suffering. There is no easy way to become a Christian and there's no way to become a great Christian without suffering. No such thing. And so we understand that if we're going to be used of God, if you've ever been prayed, the Lord use me, you've given the invitation to allow troubles and tribulations in your life. Because that's what's necessary to be dependent upon the Lord, to trust in God, to watch God work. There's a certainty of suffering. With that, we come to the cause of suffering. What is the cause of suffering? Notice, if you don't mind, in verse 14. 
uh, verse 13. But rejoice insomuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. When his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. What do you mean I could be glad? When these things happen, I could be glad. I don't have to be grumpy. By the way, just because you're hurting doesn't mean you have to be grumpy about it. We could rejoice if we recognize that it's God behind these things. Verse 14. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he, Jesus, God, is evil spoken of, but on your part, he, God, is glorified. There's, where's this cause of suffering in believers? Yea, all that shall live godly shall suffer persecution. Godly living brings suffering. If you want <laughs> to um, have no suffering in your life, do nothing, be nothing, and, and say nothing. Amen. But if you're going to live godly, you need to move forward. By the way, whenever they're kicking you in the rear, you know you have the lead. <laughs> the cause of suffering is as we try to live for the Lord, there are going to be things that happen because the world hates God. And the gospel record of John chapter 16, we're not turning there today, that Jesus explains to the disciples that the world hates you because it hates me. Now, if they hate Jesus and we're trying to be Christ-like, the world is not going to like us. What did they do with Jesus? He came down to be a blessing to the world and they killed him. What do we expect? Do we expect different treatment than the one that we're trying to be like? Not at all. The world hated Christ. It's going to hate us. That's why the Bible says that to the world they hate us. But God is glorified when we try to live like him. And we succeed. And because we succeed, there's going to be suffering. The world hates us. The light of Christ shines a light on a dark world. And the dark world does not like to be exposed. They do not like Christ. That's why the more Christ-like you are, the more uncomfortable people who are not right with God become. They hate it. Now, the old age-old Bible adage is that whenever anything goes wrong, blame the preacher. Blame the messenger. If I could get rid of the messenger, then I don't have to listen to the message. And so the world will hate you because they hate the light of Christ. As we try to live for God, understand that the cause of suffering here is because we're trying to live for the Lord. It is a promise. Then with it, we understand there's a caution concerning suffering. There's a caution concerning suffering. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's affairs. The idea of busybody carries the idea of gossiper, carries the idea of meddling. You know, sometimes we can cause our own problems, putting our nose somewhere where it's not supposed to be. The Bible says we shouldn't be involved in these type of things. That we're going to have enough problems just following Christ. We don't need to add to it. It's amazing over the years to watch Christians blame suffering on other things when they're the ones in fault. If you decided to cheat in your taxes, oh, the government's oppressing me. Well, no, it was your own fault. If you decided to steal something from the state, well, pray for me, preacher. I'm just having a spiritual battle. I'm going to jail because I shoplifted. No, it's not a spiritual. You did it yourself. 
so understand this idea. There's a caution here. We need to be careful not to allow the evils of the world to become a part of our life. We need to take a clear, decisive stand for Christ, but we have to stand where Christ stands and not get in trouble on our own and then blame it on spiritual battles. There's consequences for effect. We have to be clear that there's different things going on. We're talking here in this lesson about suffering for Christ. Not from our own mistakes and the things that we have done. There's a caution there. Then there's a conclusion of suffering. And this is where I want to spend a lot of time on. Notice if you don't mind in verse number 17. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Now that's an important statement. Where does judgment start? The house of God. Where does revival start? The house of God. God always starts at his house to get right. If God's house and God's people aren't right, how is it going to affect the world? When persecution happens, it will always happen with the Christians. We shouldn't be surprised to see when they're shutting down churches. We shouldn't be surprised when we're seeing these different things happening to churches. Many of you saw the, uh, the post I did about the Bible. About how the Chinese communists have changed the Bible. And uh, inside of their uh, account of the woman taking the very act of adultery... In the Chinese Bible, which is trying to promote Chinese socialism and Chinese communism, it says in that Jesus happened to be on some people getting ready to stone a woman. He stops them, says, what do you guys do? Then he said, those that are without sin cast the first stone. When everybody left, Jesus stoned the lady and said, I'm also a sinner. That's what the communist Bible says. To try to justify their actions. Is that what the Bible says at all? Not at all. But they've changed everything. Um, we, we know that the world is trying to attack God and trying to attack the Bible. We shouldn't be surprised. But when we look at it, we shouldn't be giving the credit to the world. Why? God is trying to purify his house. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get Christians to behave like Christians. That's why he begins at his house. Let me pause here. We're coming back eventually. But turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Ezekiel chapter number 9. In the book of Ezekiel chapter number 9, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets. Ezekiel chapter number 9. Now, what we're trying to get across here is that that judgment must begin at the house of God. Judgment and revival start at the same place. God's house getting right with God. Ezekiel chapter number 9. Now, in the context of Ezekiel chapter 9, that it is happening about 586 B.C. Class, what happens at 586 B.C.? The destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, 586 BC. Now, Ezekiel, God is giving Ezekiel a tour. The backstage, he's rev- God is pulling back the curtain for Ezekiel to look for his own self, to be able to see what God sees. In Ezekiel chapter number 8, he takes Ezekiel and he's taking him to the corruptions. And by the way, in Ezekiel chapter 8, the corruptions are in God's house. That, uh, let's take a quick tour. Um, verse number six, he said, uh, chapter eight, verse six, he said, furthermore to me, son of man, seest what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I shall go far from my secretary, but turn ye again and see the greater abominations. Now, 
what he's seeing in verse number five, sorry, I lifted up my eyes and towards the north and northward of the gate of Israel to see the image of jealousy in the entry. So as they walk into the house of God, there is something that making God aggravated that they're serving other gods. And then God says, you see, this is bad. Let me take you deeper inside and let me show you more. Now this is all in God's house. Verse number seven, and he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there behold a hole in the wall. Then he said, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I've digged in the wall, behold a door. And he said to me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations they do here. And so I went and saw in every form of creeping things an abominable beast and the idols of the house of Israel portrayed in the wall around. Now again, this is inside of the house of God. And he takes them to a secret door where the men don't think anybody's looking behind the shut doors. So they have everything. It looks good on the outside. But as they dive deeper, there's more abominations. Verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel and the midst of them Jehazanan the son of Shaphan and every man a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up and what they're doing is that they're worshiping false gods and they're doing it in and then he goes even deeper verse number 13 and he said unto me turn it again to thee and they shall see greater abominations that they do. And they brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which there was in the north. And behold, there stood the weep, uh, women weeping for Tammuz. Now, by the way, if you don't know what that is, that's called Lent in the Bible. Or in the Roman Catholic Church, that's Lent. They're following after this weeping of Tammuz. I'm not going to go into where all this came from, but that's Lent. Verse number 15, and he said to me, hast thou seen this old man? And again, he's taking him and taking more abominations. Now, where's all these abominations taking place? The house of God. Judgment must first begin at the house of God. Now in chapter 9, God now pulls back the curtain even more. And now they're going to see the spiritual things that are going on behind the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So whereas all the men are seeing the soldiers of Babylon, God says, Ezekiel, let me show you what's going on spiritually, what people can't see. Chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 1. He cried also in my ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth towards the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen as a rink writer's inkhorn by his side and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. So as this angel is giving a tour to Ezekiel, he says, wait Ezekiel, I got to take care of business. Men, come here. And these six men come and all of them have slaughter weapons in their hands. And there's one that comes up that has a writer's inkhorn in his hand. And they all report, we're reporting for duty. What would you have us to do? Notice if you don't mind verse 3. And the glory of the, of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub where he was to the threshold of the door. And he called to the man clothed with linen and had the writer's inkhorn by his hand. So here's the glory of God visible in this uh, thing. It goes up from the holiest holies and goes to the edge of the tabernacle. 
And God calls the angels here to give them instructions. Verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark on the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And verse number four, he says, I want you to go and mark the foreheads with my symbol on them. Everyone who is crying for, abom- for the abominations, basically they're praying for revival. Lord told them, go find all of those that are praying for revival and mark them. Only those that are praying for revival. Those who are not praying for revival, don't touch them. You say, all right, where's this going? Let's see. Verse 5, and to the others he said in my hear, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, nor have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man who is the mark. All right, so they're supposed to go kill everyone who doesn't have the mark. Who has the mark? Those that are praying for revival. If they're not praying for revival, they're not right with God. That's pretty scary. Then notice what he says. And begin at my sanctuary. You start in my house and you find those that are praying for revival. You mark them. But you also begin at my house and kill everyone else who's not praying for revival. That's some pretty heavy stuff. This is what's going on spiritually behind. No wonder the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 that... That, that destruction begins at the house of God. God's consistent with this, the Old Testament and New Testament. Notice if you don't mind verse um, 7. And he said to them, Desfile the house, fill the courts with the slain, and go ye forth. By the way, the people are blaming Babylon for this, but who's the one that's behind it? God. God knows what he's doing. The people said, this doesn't feel like it's good, but it's necessary. God has to have persecution begin in his house. He must begin in his house. Because if he doesn't have Christians that are right with God, then the revival's not going to happen. And he has to work on them to get Christians to be right with God. To realize that there's something going on. Verse number uh, um, 7 again. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass while they were slaying them, I was let left and I fell on my face and cried, Oh Lord God, will thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of fury upon Jerusalem? Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah are exceeding great and the land is full of blood, the city full of perverseness. For they say the Lord hath forsaken the earth and the Lord seeth not. As for me also mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way on their head. And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou have commanded me. So remember the guy with the writer's inkhorn. He was supposed to go and find all those that were praying for revival and mark them. He comes back and says, I've done. Which also implies that the other men are following behind him. They're going to be done also. Killing everyone who was not praying for revival. Now this is a big deal. God says that judgment must begin in his house. Now it is easier for us to get right with God now. 
Now's the time to get right with God. Knowing that when judgment comes, it starts here. It starts with those that God expects to be right. And then it will carry out from here. Now, come back to me with 1 Peter chapter number 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's see this conclusion of suffering. For the time has come that judgment must, verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So remember, persecution, judgment begins with us because God expects God's people to be right with God. Now, if God is willing to chastise, discipline his children, what is he going to do to all of those that rejected God? This is a serious thing. Verse number 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where should the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as a faithful creator. Here's the conclusion. We know that persecution begins at the house of God. We need to be as right with God as possible. With the idea that there are others that are going to perish and die unless they, someone tells them. And only those who are right with God are going to be effective in telling them. Understanding that our goal is to please him. To please him. We understand that when we're a part of the spiritual world, there's a lot more important things going on than what we realize. So many Christians play at church. Well, I show up. That's all that's required. No big deal. And then they live their lives however they want the rest of the week. You're not praying for revival. You're not hungry for God. You're not looking for God. God has much more than this. There's a world that's perishing and dying. And if God's people aren't right, then what's going to happen to everyone else? Why is judgment coming to America? It's not because of the abortions. It's not because of the prison system. It's not because of the Democrats. It's not because of Madison and it's not because of Washington. It is because of God's people are no longer behaving like God's people. God's people are are mixed with the world and they have no desire to be right with God. They have every desire to make them look good, to be comfortable. They have no desire for holiness. They have no desire to be close to God. They have no desire to be obedient to God. No wonder judgment must have because Christianity in America is a horrible state. And I'd like to blame all the new evangelical churches and all these churches, but let me tell you, Judgment must begin here at the house of God. We need to be right with God. Are you faithful in God's Bible? Are you praying for revival and sighing for revival and asking for people to get saved? Are you asking for people to get right? Are you looking for God to do something? Have you set yourself at God's disposal? How can you use me today? Do you take this Christianity seriously? Or is it just a Sunday activity? There is a real God and there's real judgment that comes. We must be right with God. We must be looking for revival. We have to recognize that it is us that stands in the need of prayer. It's us that need to turn to him. If my people which are called by my name. It's not talking about the liberals or the democrats. It's not talking about the atheists. If my people which are called by my name. Shall humble themselves. We're so full of pride. We think that we've got this. We think we could do it ourselves. If my people which are called by my name. Shall humble themselves and pray. Oh if there's one failing that we have. Is we fail to pray. We fail to pray. 
if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Oh, we don't like to look for God. Why? Because then we might find him. And if we find him, he's probably going to give us something to do. You ever have someone at work, or maybe when you were a kid, you got done with your job and you didn't go tell your parents you were done because you're afraid they were going to give you something else to do? Why don't we look for God? Because we're afraid he's going to give us something to do. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from our wicked ways. Why don't we give up our sin? Because we like sin. You like your sin and I like my sin. You said a preacher said, yeah. We're going to be honest. That's why we sin because we like it. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from wicked ways, then, only then, will I hear from heaven forgive their sins, and heal their land. What is that verse saying? Judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, the choice is we judge ourselves and get thoroughly right with God, or God is going to send an outside force to judge us to get us right with God. That's a choice. Which one's easier? Us to get right ourselves. You see, judgment must begin at the house of God and it doesn't wait until everything falls apart. It should start now. That we get thoroughly right with God. That we could see God's revival power. We could see God's revival spirit. And by the way, there's a promise of being spared because he needs us to use us when persecution hits. He needs people who are right with God to help people through and still witness to him when everything is falling apart. Judgment must begin at the house of God. May it start now with us getting right with God first. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.